traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. to begin by giving my thanks again to Jim Moon from the Hypnobobs podcast for that wonderful reading of Elegy last week. Now, since I've been doing this, I seem to have amassed myself quite a, a big Twilight Zone library. And one of the books in that collection is a book called The Twilight Zone, The Original Stories. And like it says, it's a collection of some of the stories that inspired the Twilight Zone by the likes of Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont and so on. And Elegy is in this book, and it's a compact little story running about 10 pages. Now I love to ask people to come onto the podcast and do readings like that, but I wouldn't like to burden someone with something too long, so about 10 pages seem to be just about right. But as you heard last week, that story took over half an hour. Now, as it turns out, the version of Elegy in that book is actually an edited version, whereas the story that you can go to Project Gutenberg and download quite legally, that I forwarded over to Jim to read from, is actually the unedited version that's considerably longer. Now, thankfully, Jim took it in a stride, but I did have a moment of panic when I started to listen to the recording that he sent me, and the beginning was completely different from the story that I'd read from that book. So when you read that edited version, it does actually work okay, um, because I'd never read the story, so it made no difference to me. But it does slightly impact on something that I'll talk about later. So I want to say thanks again, Jim, for... What I think you'll agree was a great reading. Now submitted for your approval this week is another story by Charles Beaumont, obviously, Elegy, and it was originally published in 1953 in a publication called Imagination. So as you'll have heard from that story last week, the story is pretty much the same, but there are some differences there that we'll touch upon here and there. But overall, if you've seen or read one, you won't be too surprised about what comes up in the other. So let's take a look at the Twilight Zone version of Elegy. The time is the day after tomorrow. The place, a far corner of the universe. The cast of characters, three men lost amongst the stars. Three men sharing the common urgency of all men lost. They're looking for home. And in a moment, they'll find home. Not a home that is a place to be seen, but a strange, unexplainable experience to be felt. We're getting atmosphere. Keep your fingers crossed, Pete. This may be it. It better be. We're about out of fuel. First broadcast on the 19th of February, 1960 written by Charles Beaumont and directed by Douglas Hayes. 
Now the opening you've just heard wasn't actually the opening as scripted by Charles Beaumont. Now if you remember when I spoke to Mark Zickery, the author of the Twilight Zone Companion, you might remember that he mentioned an unmade episode of the Twilight Zone called The Happy Place that Rod Serling penned. Now Serling actually used parts of the opening to The Happy Place in his revised opening for Elegy. And what I'm going to read to you now is the actual scripted opening to The Happy Place as, as Sailing first wrote it. And it goes like this. The time is the day after tomorrow. Man has lived through his wars, his bombs and his rockets. And this is the society of the future. It's a forceful society where nothing remains static. The process of living operates from different rules now. And there is a new god called Perfection. But this god is only temporary. So as we see, Kurt Mayers, Peter Kirby and Captain James Webber have just landed on a planet. They check their readings and they find out that the planet is habitable. There is some slight argument about whether they should actually go out or not. But in the end we find out that they really have no choice. I don't get it. That's air. Gravity. Unit one. It's incredible. Conditions identical to Earth, and yet we're 655 million miles away from Earth. Wait a minute, Pete. These instruments could be wrong. What's the difference? We're not going anywhere now. Yeah, I guess you're right. So they exit the ship and they find themselves in what appears to be a farm. A farm that seems pretty typical looking to us, but they seem to describe it as a farm from 200 years ago. The problem is when they find the farmer, he seems to be completely lifeless and frozen. And as they explore further, they find a fisherman, exactly the same, sitting on the bank of a river, completely frozen and lifeless. Now that in itself is quite a strange shot because I think maybe there's some little bit of trickery gone on there where they've tried to cover up maybe some little mistake or some missing piece of footage, I'm not too sure, but if you look at the two men standing on the bridge then there's an obviously quite a static shot, it looks like a frozen panel of film and like I say I do kind of wonder if it's masking some poor piece of footage or damaged film. But as they go on, there's a trend here. They keep finding more and more people frozen like this. And eventually they come into a building where a man has just been elected mayor. He stood on some steps, and they are very familiar steps to Twilight Zone fans. They were used in the last episode we discussed, the Purple Testament. And they were also used, of course, in the 13mm shrine. So I guess this is probably a good point to discuss the methods they use to keep these people frozen. Now the director Douglas Hayes was quite proud of the fact that they they didn't use dummies at all, they used real people all of the time. And he told Mark Zickery in the Twilight Zone Companion, If you'll notice on Elegy, when you see those characters, the camera is almost always in movement, moving backwards and forwards, panning and so forth. I admire his dedication trying to go completely natural with real people doing that, but is it entirely successful? Probably not, you know, I think there is that unavoidable wavering that you can't help but see when people are trying to stand completely still. And there's a scene later on when a couple are both holding glasses of champagne and the liquid is quite clearly moving in the glass as well. But I don't think it's a deal breaker, I think it's forgivable 
and I kind of appreciate the effort that they put into it. You know, they could have gone with mannequins or cutting to freeze frames. You know, they made that effort to try and make it look natural and fair play to them. But when Douglas Hayes comes back to direct the After Hours, another episode that utilizes people needing to stay still, if you like, he uses a different method. But we'll talk more about that when we come to the After Hours. There's a scene here that I very much like, and it's where the three men stand and discuss what could be going on. Well, any ideas, Professor? Well, I suppose it could be some sort of illusion. Yes. Maybe we're being made to see and hear what we hope to find. The sights and sounds of home. No. No, that's all wrong. This is more than 200 years ahead of our time. Or it could be that time itself is suspended here. Well, time may have, in a sense, have speeded up for us or slowed down for them. You mean they might actually be moving? It's possible. Then why can't we see it? Well, you, you don't see the movements of a clock's hands. Nevertheless, they do move. believe what you're saying no of course not the reason why I like it so much is pretty much all of these possibilities are things we've probably seen in science fiction stories maybe before or since or both but they do seem quite familiar and apparently Rod Sailing turned down a pitch for a Twilight Zone episode that used the living at different speeds theory that they actually mention in the show. So we're given all of these different possibilities and at one point one of the men turns to the other and says do you believe what you're saying? And he says no. So they bring out all these fantastical theories, some of them that I guess are quite predictable in sci-fi terms now but the truth is actually a little bit more mundane. So the men decide to split up and that brings us to quite an important scene I think, it's the beauty pageant. Now in the original script there is no beauty pageant but there is a car race. One of Charles Beaumont's passions was car racing so he put that into the script and it was a car race with drivers in cars frozen in time. But the director Douglas Hayes decided to change it and as he says in the Twilight Zone Companion to me, stationary cars don't seem to be frozen in movement, they just seem to be parked cars. So he put in the beauty pageant instead. Now Charles Beaumont wasn't actually too keen on this change. Douglas Hayes said, Charles never liked anything I did with any story he ever wrote, but continued to be friends with me, assuming apparently that we had the right to be different. Rod would endorse what I had done in terms of changes on his stories enthusiastically, while Charles would say, I don't think you did my story any good at all. It had been a while since I saw this episode when I watched it recently and I couldn't remember the outcome to be honest. I think I got the desired effect from this scene where there's a, a line of women who are what is considered conventionally more suited to a beauty pageant and one who would be considered less so. It's pure wish fulfillment on the part of that young lady and 
I guess it's something that we don't really consider with this episode, even though we're told later on that these are in fact dead people. We don't really give that much thought. I mean, it might be because at this point we don't actually know that yet, so the episode never really lingers on it. But I guess when you think about it, it makes this young lady perhaps a rather sad little figure. You know, she is quite young, so she did die before her time, and in life she wouldn't have been allowed to enter those beauty pageants because she didn't conform to what was expected. You know, so maybe that hurt her a lot, and doesn't necessarily have to go as far as beauty pageants. It could just be that in life she saw opportunities pass her by because of the way she looked, so, so in death she chose that ultimate kind of fantasy of hers. And all of this makes me think that the first part of what Peter Kirby says to it is actually quite sweet. Your Majesty, I don't blame the judges. You're the prettiest of them all. But tell me something, Your Majesty. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with everybody in this crazy place? Answer me. Can't you talk? Can't you move? Answer me! So then there's the reveal, and one of the audience sitting at the beauty pageant moves, and it's Mr. Wickwire. Now, having listened to Jim's reading of that story, you'll know that this was changed from Greypool to Wickwire. I have no idea why. Maybe it was just that Wickwire sounds a little bit more eccentric, I don't know. Now, the other difference is that in the short story, we meet Mr. Greypool straight away, but in Elegy, it's almost halfway through the episode before we meet Mr. Wickwire, so which one's better? I think for me, the episode does the right thing by letting them explore this world a little bit and building up that sense of mystery and suspense and letting the audience try to guess what's going on before the reveal. Do come inside. Come on, won't you? Come on, come inside. There's nothing to be afraid of, I assure you. Huh? Do you like it? We built it for a Mr... Uh, Mr Jenkinson. <laughs> but at the last moment he decided that the one thing he wanted to be was a knight in armour. So he's out there in the medieval section, slaying a dragon. You mean there are other sections? Hmm? Oh, yes, of course. We have many sections. There's the Roman, the Egyptian, the Wild Western. But this is the most popular because it represents a period in American culture when creature comforts were most abundant and before peace on earth became impossible. So the next scenes of note are when they meet Wickwire and we learn that the astronauts actually left Earth on, on a routine geological mission as opposed to the story where they had escaped Earth to get away from what they called the last great war. Now I think it's an important difference because the astronauts in the episode are quite sympathetic characters I think. They are nice guys, they're just in a place where they don't know what's going on. They don't seem to be hostile in any way and, you know, they're decent men. Whereas in the short story, when you hear of the troubles that they had on Mars and the way they're quite pushy with Greypool. Now at the end of both stories, the message is that where there's men, there'll be no peace. And the group of astronauts in the short story just reinforce that. 
Whereas the astronauts in the episode are paying for the sins of their race, really, when they themselves aren't necessarily that bad that we know of. Tell me, did they ever have that atomic war? Yes, in 1985. Most of the Earth's surface was destroyed, and it's taken us 200 years to pick up the pieces. Oh, how sad. Mr. Wickwire, now you've got to explain some things to us before we go out of our minds. Certainly, but you look hungry. Let me fix you a little lunch first, then we'll talk. You wait a second. Now, you tell us one thing right now. Where are we? Why, you're in a cemetery. Didn't you know? I very much like how Wickwire, quite early on after meeting them, sets things in motion for what's going to happen to the men. He's a good host, he offers them a drink and answers their questions and quite naturally slips in one of his own. Sit down, my boy, sit down. Come on, sit down. What is it? Now, you said that we were in a cemetery. What did you mean? Just exactly that. But before I explain, you must give me some information. If you were granted your dearest wish, what would your wish be? I'm not sure I know what you mean. I mean, where would you rather be right now? I'd like to be on the ship headed for home. And you, Captain? I'll go along with that. So it is quite naturally done, and apart from maybe a slight little look when they're drinking the wine, there is no indication that he's doing anything at all. But when you look back and see, you'll see that he was actually, in what you could say, maybe a very machine-like way, doing his job, putting things in place. I think most people will agree that Cecil Kellaway, who played Wickwire, is the standout performance of the episode. Now, he was born in 1893 in South Africa, but he spent his early working life in Australia as an actor and an author and director until he moved to Hollywood. Like I say, I think he's the best thing about the episode. He has so much charm and a certain twinkle in his eye. But then he really manages to pull off that moment where the humour just drains out of him near the end. And that's of course when, after we've discovered that Wickwire is the non-human caretaker, and he's not about to let the peace of the place be ruined, that twinkle in his eye goes away while he says his final piece. I'm sorry. Truly I am. The antidote. Give us the antidote. There is no antidote, Captain. Even now, the eternifying fluid is coursing through your veins. But it, it won't be painful, I assure you. But why? Why us? Because you are here, and you are men. And while there are men, there can be no peace. Now we will see Cecil Kellaway again in the episode Passage on the Lady Anne. Now when I read the edited version of the short story in the book and then watched the episode, it seemed that the Twilight Zone episode very much had that final message about man's inability to be peaceful. Whereas in the story, it was there, but it wasn't there as much. It felt more like the story of some men finding an abandoned machine that is still kind of doggedly going through the motions of its its programmed task. And I guess there is maybe some of that in there, you know? 
We've seen plenty of those kinds of stories over the years, and to some degree this is one. His primary function is to preserve the peaceful surroundings for the people that are there. And when he applies that computer-like logic to the situation, logically, mankind is a threat to that peace. But I think the way it had been edited down took away some of that, and it wasn't until I heard Jim reading the story that I realised it's actually the other way around. The, the written story has it running through the whole thing from start to finish, where, whereas the episode kind of saves that until the end and tells you what it's all about in that final drop. The final drop where we see that the, the astronauts are actually poisoned and they too join the cemetery themselves. So what are those three men? Well, they were played by Jeff Morrow, Don Dubbins and Kevin Hagen. Now there's nothing on their resumes that particularly jumps out at me, but they did seem to be very busy television actors, which was good. But sadly all three men have passed away now, with Kevin Hagen being the last. He passed in 2005. There is something of note though on Jeff Morrow's resume, and that is that his last role was actually in the 80s revival of the Twilight Zone series, where he played a character called Mr. Orson in a segment called A Day in Beaumont. Nice little nod I think there. Now I haven't seen the episode, so I can't comment on it at this time, but we will get to it in the podcast one day, and if you're in the UK, by the time this episode goes out, on the 12th of July 2011, the Horror Channel over here are actually starting to show the 80s series at 6pm every day, so you might get to see that episode pretty soon. Now I do notice that a lot of the time in sci-fi of this time period, you know, the 50s stroke 60s, the astronauts are depicted as either these square-jawed kind of heroes or kind of like working guys, you know. The portrayal might be the same whether they were a car mechanic or an astronaut and I think the way they portrayed the analogy is somewhere between these two things, the kind of square-jawed heroes and the, the working Joes. I wouldn't say I think the performances are particularly good myself. I accept them, don't get me wrong, as part of an episode that I enjoy, but I do think that a lot of the time all they're given to do is really exclaim, you know, tell us what's going on, what's going to happen, but that kind of thing, and it does get a little overplayed at times. But like I say, you know, I accept it for what it is, and it's fine. So overall, I, I do enjoy Elegy a lot. Maybe a couple of tiny flaws here and there, but nothing substantial, and, you know, I really like the 50s sci-fi feel of it, you know, kind of Forbidden Planet-esque in the way their ship is and their and their clothes, you know, I love that movie and I think every, you know, a lot of things kind of take from that and this is probably one of those things. But it's interesting too when you hold it up to the last episode that Charles Bowman brought us and that was the pretty much subtext-free Perchance to Dream, very much in contrast to what Rod Sailing had shown us so far. But this time there's a very clear message and it's not a very hopeful one. The episode holds up a mirror to mankind and sadly, in the 50 years since this episode was made, we haven't really proven Mr. Wickwise's logic to be wrong. Kirby, Weber and Myers, three men lost. They shared a common wish, a simple one really. They wanted to be aboard their ship headed for home. And fate, a laughing fate, 
A practical jokester with a smile that stretched across the stars saw to it that they got their wish, with just one reservation. The wish came true, but only in the Twilight Zone. Well, I hope if you're in the US, you enjoyed your 4th of July Twilight Zone marathon. I do wish it's something they would adopt over this side of the pond, but sadly no. But it certainly did do the download numbers for the Twilight Zone podcast a lot of good. They really spiked on those couple of days. So if you're a new listener, welcome to the podcast and it's it's good to have you. Now, as I always like to do, I've got some iTunes reviews to be thankful for. And the first one is from James Lane over in the US. And he left me a nice little review there. He says, thanks for all the time and effort you put into each podcast. And well, thank you for listening, James. Much appreciated. And I also have two on the UK iTunes, and one is from a very nice one from a gent by the name of John Cottage, and it's really great review, very, very touching one. So thank you, John, really appreciate it. And another one by Jake Antatius101, and he's actually only 24 years old, so it's good to hear from a young Twilight Zone fan, so that's great. Thanks a lot, Jake Antatius, appreciate it. Now I did mention in the last podcast that I would be trying to get going a little listener feedback section called Submitted for Your Approval and a couple of people have answered the call. Now I haven't had time to get a little jingle in place but we'll we'll do that next time maybe. First up we have a good friend of the podcast by the name of Ben and he says regarding the reading of the original story Elegy Whilst I found the narration and very atmospheric use of the Twilight Zone score to be excellent, the story itself seemed to have dated very badly in my opinion, even on the assumption that the story was social commentary rather than hard sci-fi, the characters and scripting seemed very wooden. However, the one point of interest that didn't follow through to the Twilight Zone episode was the apparent homoerotic undercurrent to the story. Either this was a very brave and subtle exploration of the notion of men living happily together with no need for women, or the prism of modernity has cast a very false view of this aspect of the tale for me. I'd be interested to know what others think about this point. Well, that's an interesting way to look at it, Ben, and uh, yeah, if you've got any comments on that one, then by all means, put a put a comment on the Twilight Zone network or maybe on the forum. Maybe it's something that bears more talking about. So thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. I also had an email from another friend of the show, Nasa Hassan, who we've spoken about before, and he sent some feedback about the episode The Fever, and he says, I think the most important aspect of the episode is the moral to the story, which was a warning to never be too uppity, for the lack of a better word, in the way you treat people, especially those that love you. Franklin's high morals were were proven not to be true as he was dragged down with the rest of us animals, as he put it, at the first opportunity he got. I think the actor did an amazing job of portraying this warning by being so aggressive in his attitude at the top of the episode, bristling at everything being said. His downfall was equally amazing as he screamed give me back my dollar at the machine while being dragged off. The actor's ability to show confidence in the beginning, to be desperate in the middle, angry toward the end and filled with fear and panic before he died in less than 30 minutes span should be pointed out. 
It should also be noted that Mrs. Gibbs was played incredibly well. You could feel a true pain in her voice and a true disappointment and shock that her highfalutin husband could fall victim to a simple one-armed bandit. I think her overplayed at times dismay was delivered that way by design in order to show that those that think so highly of themselves and that preach moral values so heavily are the ones that disappoint those they love so much more. The episode was more about a fall from grace than a gambling addiction. It was just cleverly de delivered in a Las Vegas setting. When I listened to your review, I did agree that the machine chasing him through the halls and out the window was a bit campy. That was my first thought when watching it too. Especially if you watch the Twilight Zone episodes in sequence, considering some of the less sci-fi oriented episodes that began season one. At this point in the series, you had episodes on Earth with a fairly grounded set of effects and episodes that were taking place on meteors and spaceships, but nothing too crazy happened actually on Earth in modern times. So the idea of a living, breathing one-armed bandit in modern Vegas is a stretch. At the same time, the more you watch the episode, the more accustomed to the look you get and the scene at the end with the machine in the street becomes more a final indignity to Franklin that was necessary. The coin being tossed back is like the final slap in the face at a man that couldn't live up to the morals that he had inflicted on others. Once again, Sailing delivers on a topic that still applies to our lives over 50 years later as we see this sort of thing play out with politicians on a semi-regular basis. Thanks for the time and join the podcast as always. You know, that's a great point, and our friend Stephen actually made similar points on the episodes when we posted it at the old Dimension X radio site, and I think it's something that I didn't really pick up on, so maybe this is another reason why it's good to get these uh, other people contributing like this. I think it's fantastic, so thank you, Nasa Hassan. Much appreciated. Now, next time we're going to be talking about the episode Mirror Image, so if you'd like to get some feedback in about that episode, you can email me at tom at thetwilightzonenetwork.com and an email is great, or if you can record mp3 feedback, that's great too, I'll accept both. So thank you once again for listening, I, I know the episodes aren't coming out as regularly as I would like. It's unfortunate that in life at the moment I'm very busy studying for a completely new career at the moment, so it's taken up a lot of my spare time and sadly the podcast has suffered, I do appreciate that. But, you know, I'm going to keep on going and there are going to be times when I won't be able to do it as much and there are going to be times when I'll be able to do it more, hopefully, and catch up, you know. Hopefully it'll level itself out in the end, but I guarantee that we're going to get to the end of the Twilight Zone. So I hope you'll bear with me through this time while I go through this career change and, you know, we'll still get some episodes out, but... Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to pick up again more regularly down the line. I'm not going on hiatus or anything like that. But, you know, when assignments are due and that kind of thing, then I will need to obviously put that at the top of the list. So, anyway, mirror image next time, and I hope you'll join me then. Bye-bye.